Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox story, which features an important guest, Dr. Kelly Nichols. Important because she's currently Dean of the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Optometry, but also president of ASCO, the Association for Schools and Colleges of Optometry. Dr. Nichols, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Well, thank you for having me here. This is a pleasure. Well, it's really great to get to know people. You and I have just connected and, and learned about each other's backgrounds, and I can't wait to tell some of your stories. You said to me in a pre-interview that your friends have been following your nature photography for a few years, <laughs> and maybe not everyone knows about it. What led you to the passion of nature photography? I've always been involved in art since I was young, um, and painting takes a lot of time. So since I'm kind of busy, I don't have the time to do that sort of thing. Um, and I've always enjoyed taking photographs. And now that you have a camera that can easily do that wherever you go, you can see things anywhere and take a photograph. So we were at actually a joint ASCO AOA meeting out in California on the coast. And I had gone out for a run and come across some beautiful flowers and taken a picture of them. And I, I got home and my husband was like, you have so many pictures of flowers, you know, you should do something with them. And I'm like, what would I possibly do with them? And I hadn't been a Instagram person at the time. I don't think Instagram was brand new, but certainly not brand new, but it was new to me. And so people said, you should do Instagram because you don't really have to talk about it with, you know, it's just a photograph if you want to. So I posted um, a picture on April 30th, uh, 19 or 2018, which is now three years and some ago, and I've never missed a day. And so the hashtag is daily nature photos, KKN and I live in the South, so a lot of it is pictures of flowers and this the lush vegetation that we have here. But my son is now in Utah, and he takes pictures of vistas because he's a mountain biker. And so I've actually convinced him to send me shots that I can post, which makes me feel like he's appreciation of his appreciation of nature has really grown. And you're both using just basic uh, digital photography off of your mobile device? Yeah, just an iPhone. There's a lot you can do. And, you know, you have to start, I tell Brady, you have to start with good content, but then you can do a little photo editing, you know, nothing like cropping people in or out or things in or out, but just to tweak the color or the contrast, something like that. But I really enjoy that part almost as much as taking the photos. And on Instagram, again, it's Nature Photos KKN. Yep, it's uh, Daily Nature Photo, KKN, is the Instagram. And I'm Kelly K. Nichols, if anybody wanted to occasionally see a human in one of my photos, something that's okay. going on at the school or something like that. So more than welcome to have people join. I also ha that's awesome. I also have to ask about your uh, ability to cook. You said that ah. you have a special dish, dick, duck cassoulet. Cassoulet. Yep, it's a French what dish. Is I think duck it's cassoulet. Yeah, I, so you start out with duck legs, which sometimes are hard to find, and you, 
you uh, make them confit, which means you slow boil them in oil, you know, olive oil, garlic, pepper, and some herbs for hours until the meat's almost falling off the bone. And then you make a, a bean. It has a white bean base and you nestle sausage and the duck in it. And it's a slow cook in the oven, has a little bit of a tomato base and it's delicious. I think originally it probably was what the French did when they had like just stuff left over and they would throw it on the stove and then pop that in the oven for hours. And it's actually, you know, kind of a very difficult dish to make. And uh, your husband's also an optometrist. Just tell us quickly about him and your family. Right. So we um, met when I went to Ohio State to work on a PhD, and he was just finishing up optometry school. And then he stayed on there, went to do a master's degree in contact lenses with Joe Barr. And then I finished my PhD. He had started the PhD program. So we were kind of competing for degrees. We both have OD, MPH, and PhD. Somewhere along the line, we got married and we had two boys while we were there. We, uh, we were on faculty for a while and then we moved to Houston. We've always done research together. He's always been a bit more of the contact lens side. I've been a bit more of the dry eye side and, and they, they collide quite a bit. So we've always had a shared lab. Well, I was going to say, you've, you've got a lot of degrees to say you're an academic is academic. <laughs> what got you headed toward eye care? Hmm. Well, when I was looking for, I was one of those STEM undeclared college juniors. You know, I knew that I liked healthcare and biology and chemistry, but I didn't really know which direction I was going. And I knew that blood was not something I, I kind of, I wouldn't say I got queasy. I just didn't like it. Um, and the thoughts of needles and knives and all that were, it was kind of, you know, a lot of people feel the same way. And at that time, my, my dad said, well, you know, maybe you should go talk to the optometrist. He's a good friend of mine. And so I went with, met with our family optometrist, who was actually very involved in, I lived in Nevada, Reno, Nevada. He was very involved in Nevada AOA politics and just kind of sort of introduced me to optometry. And I went to optometry school. That's awesome. And what got you or drove you to these deep paths of education? Because, I mean, talking about, you know, so many degrees, both you and your husband, uh, that, that really must be a passion. What, what drove you to those? A little bit of a means to an end. So if you're an optometrist and you want to do research, you kind of have to have an additional degree if you want to kind of compete with, you know, the world out there. And so, you know, the PhD in vision science was a, a natural choice. Also, I had kind of thought about academic optometry after completing a residency. And, you know, you, in order to do that, you kind of could, you'd have better chances, I guess, of going into academic leadership if you had done an additional degree as well. So it's a, it's a bit of means to an end, but you learn so much. I mean, getting a PhD and a master's in public health, you really get, you really have the time to focus on an area that's very interesting to you and hopefully make some scientific discovery. Well, let's talk a little bit more about education. I mean, you've been the dean at UAB since 2014. How have you seen optometric education morph just in those seven years? It really has. In that time, we've seen at least there several new schools. So there were 19 for a really long time, and now we have 23. And so some new schools have come on, and then you hear inklings of others that are you know, starting. Um, and so... 
that com that's competition. You know, it, it brings on the question of the applicant pool and the number of optometrists that are out there retiring or staying in practice and what that might look like. So from that front end, it's been different as well in terms of what that looks like with the state's expanding scope. You know, that's really legislation that's really changed what we are thinking about relative to medical optometry within the schools and colleges of optometry. And then, you know, I think we just have opportunities to continue to try and um, work with ophthalmologists and then there's venture and there's so many different types of optometry practice out there. So I've seen students go from only knowing about what a private practice optometrist looks like to now having many more options of things to consider. Have you had to work really diligently on curriculum adjustments because of expansion of scope and other things, or has it been step-by-step -step changes? I, for those that aren't in school or aren't overseeing programs like you are, tell us how the academic process has changed, if there is any. Well, where we've lived, you know, in the in the South region, there's always been push for, you know, scope and expansion. We're not that far off from Oklahoma, you know, and they had it for the longest time, but we've really seen that kind of grow in and around the South. So now there's several states around us and then Kentucky, of course, it's not that far North. Some would say yeah. South as well that um, have, you know, that. So we've always had um, those sorts of things in our curriculum. And so we didn't have to work too hard to add them. Now we don't have the ability to, you know, practice them on humans in our state. You know, so we have practiced in other ways and that's been, you know, good, but eventually we'll all hopefully be able to practice in our states and maybe sooner rather than later. So it's slow, you know, in some ways, but you always have to teach to the highest level of any state in the country. And I would say all optometry schools adhere to that because you have students who go out everywhere. Right. I've had a lot of guests on Sandbox Stories say they wanna urge colleagues to recommend optometry to young people. And I know you're passionate about this. Tell us a little bit about ASCO's initiative called Optometry Gives Me Life. Right. So the applicant pool is, we are kind of a little bit of best kept secret in many ways. And still the number one way that young people find out about optometry is because somebody told them. So that could be their optometrist in a story very similar to mine, or it could be, you know, I'm imagining in exam rooms all over, you know, some young high school student is saying, what is it like to be an optometrist? And so that's still a very popular route for people to hear about optometry, but it's often not enough. Um, oftentimes, optometry isn't one of the main health professions that's given to a college student who's gone to a counselor. They may first say dentistry or medicine, and we're working really hard to try and encourage uh, counselors and such to also make that be one of the options that they give to talented pre-health students like myself when I was back in, back in the day. But even that's still not enough. So ASCO launched a campaign a few years ago called Optometry Gives Me Life, and it's focused on real optometrists who have interesting careers. Um, right now, there are three that have been focused on, and it's essentially a social media platform that you or I would never see because we're not the target audience. And the fact that we're not mm -hmm. seeing it is probably good. But if you've typed in optometry or optometry school or health professions in a Google search or something else, or even, you know, you'll, you may see then the ad show up on the side about optometry gives me life. And it's a very bright 
colorful, catchy, fast-paced video recording that's short, um, short in time. And it talks about these three, there's three individual snippets that talk about these three different optometrists and how they can have a great professional career, but also a real life, you know, work-life balance. And so <clears throat> each of them is different and kind of probably targets a particular, you know, can be targeted as well. And now we have two more that are being filmed right now so that, that we're sort of expanding the number of doctors that are out there. And we're trying to work collaboratively with other organizations. Um, the AOA has a program about optometry, and we've talked about the possibility of even a crossover person or at least featuring each other's doctors in our combined social media. And the goal is to increase the applicant pool. Um, we've been doing it now for three years, and we've increased the applicant pool by about 11%. And that doesn't seem like a lot, and it really needs to be double or triple that but we are not decreasing the applicant pool size and that's critically important. I wanna make the disclaimer that you don't, you aren't here as an official ASCO spokesperson, but in your role with ASCO, I think a question would be asked by some optometrists is, are optometry schools really needing that many applicants or are we turning out too many doctors? That, that age old question, how would you mm -hmm. generally explain you know, to the practicing OD that, we need more applicants and, and we need more doctors. Well, if you, you know, if you're at the state association level and you're talking to doctors at, at, at meetings and such, there's plenty of people who want to retire and don't have somebody who, to come into their practice. And so that's the feet on the ground type of um, concept. I mean, I don't know the distribution, you know, of course, optometry is widely distributed across the United States. And I don't know if the younger generations are actually wanting to widely distribute as much as perhaps generation ago. And so um, while there may be a condensation of them in a, in a populous area, I don't know if, you know, they're getting out there into the rural communities as much. So in that aspect, we still do need, you know, doctors, of course. And there's so, the burden of eye disease is amazing. There will always be, you know, things for us to do. Um, at the pace that we're going right now, I don't think that we have too many optometrists. Um, and, or I don't think we're graduating too many either. Having said that, um, ASCO, ASCO is the association that is made up of the deans and presidents of all the schools and colleges of optometry. And we like all other organizations, don't have anything to do or any say in when an optometry school comes into existence. You know, that's a decision that's made at some university level, and then they can join ASCO, but we don't regulate them. That would be, you know, inhibition of trade and all of that. So the accreditation body is the ACOE, and they are the ones that, you know, make sure that any new school that's coming along is meeting all the standards of education that are required to create entry-level optometrists. That's a great summary. I want to shift to you as a professional. You're widely regarded as a leading authority on dry eye disease. And I looked at your list of published papers. That's really impressive. And so I guess I'm curious if you could give me a sense of where you see optometry in the arc of our pursuit of managing patients with dry eyes. Um, are, are, is there just a widely unexplored frontier? Are we, you know, sort of, is our arsenal full and, and satisfactorily full? What, what is your view? Yeah, you know, dry eye is interesting because I picked dry eye as a research topic when I was in starting the PhD program. Um, it largely because my mentor, Dr. Carla Zadnik, uh, said you should pick something that you are passionate about, but also something that optometry can do. And at this time, 
at that time, really, there were only a few optometrists that were doing dry eye at all or doing any dry eye research. And they were really kind of pioneers. Don Corb is one of those. And, um, and Carolyn Begley, Robin Chalmers, Barb Caffrey. And so my advisor, Carla, set me up with them to kind of learn about the dry eye part. She could teach me about clinical trials and research, you know, paradigms, but the dry eye part, I kind of started with them. And then from there, it just kind of grew. Back then, dry eye had just been defined. It had its first definition in 1995-96, and there weren't any treatments. You know, So what you could do, well, there was punctal plugs, and that's what I did in my residency, tons. And then, and that was it. And so um, since that time, if I look back at that, there really has been such a growth. I mean, we now have several, one even approved this week, therapeutics for dry mm -hmm. eye. Um, and so that's exciting. And I now have the opportunity to work kind of on the, the quiet side of many startup companies who come to me because they don't know about study design and dry eye. They don't know about optometry and how optometry you know, has really embraced dry eye. And so <laughs> I kind of can help give some guidance on those areas. So I hear a little bit about all of these companies, these names you would never even know. So I know out there, there are, you know, 10, at least 10 companies that have something brewing um, related to dry eye. And a lot of them are different types of molecules that are not currently available to treat dry eye. So eventually, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll have an armamentarium like we do in glaucoma, where you can add some to each other, and maybe we can differentiate a bit better. And this one is for this type of patient. And our classification will become you know, more understood so that we can target specific treatments towards certain types of dry eye. And so I think it's only going to keep going. It's a huge market. So I think it's very positive. I, I'd be interested in your advice to the practicing optometrist who says that they do some management of dry eye, right? The cursory level, but there's either a time commitment manner um, where, you know, they know there's patients with clinically relevant disease, but they don't feel like they have the time to focus on all of the treatments or there's too many patients, too many things to go through with patients and healthcare coverage. What is your advice to them to take it another level? Because I see daily emails about, you know, learn about this stuff, get deeper involved. But I think there's a lot of docs that are on a cursory level. How would you advise them to go deeper? Yeah, it's interesting. I just wrote about this in my editorial for Ocular Surface News this week. Um, okay. I call it the, there's actually something called the Goldilocks principle and what it, and it's applied across politics, um, so many different disciplines. And what it really says is there's, there's a just right, you know, there's a not, there's something that's in between too little and too much. And so you need to kind of find and focus on what that just right is. And so I think that there's a Goldilocks principle for dry eye and it is practitioner specific and it may even be practice level specific too. So it may be a practice is really interested in dry eye, but not all the docs in there are. And so I think people just have to come around like how much is right for them and what is the office protocol gonna be. So you, you know, you've talked to some doctors who have dry eye only practices, that's all they do. And then you have some docs who, you know, really just don't know how that they can incorporate it into what they're regularly doing. So my advice for those that are really, there's enough information out there for those docs who really want to go all in 
you know, they, they can have, they'll be using all the different treatments. They'll be doing IPL. They'll be, they'll be doing everything. And then I, I like to say, keep it simple because dry is really not that hard. So you can come up with your own just right protocol of what you're going to do to determine if a patient is dry eye or not, and then what you're going to do after that. And then you're going to see if it works. So, you know, the recommendations from the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society diagnostic report in 2017 said that it, you can keep it very simple. You can do three. You can do the symptom survey or questionnaire, and then if that is positive, meaning they have symptoms, and you can even do this by interview if that's your Goldilocks principle, is just to figure out what questions you want to ask, and then do a um, tear film breakup time and or osmolarity measurement and or ocular surface staining. So if you can do those, you can do all of them. But if you don't have all that, you don't need to. So what that means is you need a slit lamp and some fluorescein dye and the ability to ask questions. And if you do that and you have you know abnormal results for those, then you have a positive dry eye screening. And here's where you decide what's next for you as a practitioner. Do you want to just say, I can prescribe this for you now, or do you say, I want you to come back in six weeks and I'm going to do a more extensive workup. So this is the bifurcation of, you know, medical management, or I just want to do something for my patients the way that I'm seeing them right now, not forget about them and then follow them up at some point, you know, that's within a reasonable follow-up time. So you don't lose them. And so doctors can decide just to do a little bit. I would say for those that are doing, you know, routine exam after routine exam, just incorporate a little bit of it into your routine exam. And make that be what you do. At some point with glaucoma, we all decided we thought that taking eye pressure was going to happen as part of a routine eye exam. And I think dry eye should be just like that. So, you know, look with your slit lamp, put in a little dye, do tear film breakup time, look for staining press on the meibomian glands and either call it a day or have them come back. That's twice that you've correlated glaucoma, you know, inclusive glaucoma diagnostic and treatments uh, with dry eye. And I, I love that. Um, and I appreciate you sharing. It. And I, I wonder just out loud, um, my mind thinks, boy, a lot of doctors feel like the, the diagnostic panel is more complicated then they want to go down the path, but you really simplify it, right? It's, it's about talking to patients, and that means implementing a team-wide protocol about what questions we ask, whether it's an official survey, something like you know, TFOS put together or, or something else that they do, and then finding a few tests that you do already. You got the slip lamp. I, I just, that's really simplified. Is the diagnostic protocol or maybe the sense that it's more expansive than you've explained it, a barrier to doctors implementing dry eye strategies in their practice? Probably because they think, well, I have to have fancy equipment. You know, I have to be able to, you know, look at biography or then I'm going to have to buy an expensive treatment that goes with it. And that's not necessarily true either. I mean, there are steps towards all of that. So, um, you know, we all have a slit lamp. Not everybody always puts in fluorescein all the time, but if you start making that your habit, you know, and then actually doing a little bit of pressure on the meibomian glands, then that doesn't take that much more time and, you know, in chair time. And in some ways, the survey can be done or these other tests, say you do osmolarity or something else, those can be done without you even in the room. Your staff can do that. So all you have to do is take a look at the record and see if they are maybe a dry eye person or not before you even go in the room. 
yeah. some practices educator, do auxiliary. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say the educator educating. I, I, I love that. <laughs> I, I think that um, the other part of it is doctors need to, like they do with pressure testing or anything else you're doing, looking at the macula, is talk to the patients about what you're seeing while you're doing it, right? Because mm -hmm. there is this unknown to the patient. Why are you pressing on my eyelid? How do you advise doctors in that way to educate the patient along the way? Yeah, it's really interesting because there has been uh, there have been some studies that have shown that what patients tell you is underheard by the practitioner. So they may be complaining about how their eyes feel, and you may be kind of going, oh yeah, 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 and going along your way and doing it really fast. Um, but if you were actually to do a few steps like I mentioned, you could be thinking and, uh, and asking them a few more questions to elaborate on that while you're poking at their eyelid. And so it, it does help then to kind of cement the process and the steps in your mind when you kind of think of it that way. Because a lot of times patients will have dry eye and it's not their primary reason for coming today. They're coming today because they broke their glasses or they can't see or whatever the situation might be. And so it's not first in mind to say, oh yeah, and by the way, my eyes don't feel very good almost all the time. They may not tell you that right off the bat. So you might not actually ask those questions until you see something on the cornea, for example, and then, and then it'll come out. Yeah. And, and I guess lastly on this topic, what resource would you recommend optometrists go to to get this distilled knowledge in, and, and start to Get more deeply involved. You referenced, uh, you know, your your editorial earlier. Please go ahead and recommend what you think would be a, a good resource or two for doctors to attend to um, ocular surface insights. Yeah, there's certainly a lot out there, and that can maybe be overwhelming as well. Um, so I uh, co-edit with Dr. Ambergam a, a monthly e-newsletter called Ocular Surface News. And you can sign up and get that to your, your inbox. We make themes for each issue and we try and cover uh, a research article that's relevant. And then we have a few columnists who kind of talk about it, like what they're doing to incorporate things in their practice and then what pipeline looks like. So it's, you know, 400 words of each column condensed once a month. So that's easy. And then there are other things like that that are out there. So if you subscribe to Review of Optometry or you know, contact, lens, contact Lens Journals or Optometric Management, those sorts of things, you can sign up for dry eye newsletters. And, and honestly, once you've done that once or twice, you're going to get all the pearls from different doctors that come to you. And so then it's a matter of finding a doctor who you trust and seeing what they talk about. And one other thing about optometry before we get toward our end, and that is you've been really involved in the American Academy of Optometry, but there are many practicing ODs who haven't connected with the Academy. What's your advice for them? Well, you know, there's there's so much smart stuff going on, I guess I would say there. You know, that's where the people who are in schools and colleges of optometry are doing, you know, research on, on clinical cases, on uh, clinical studies. And so we, it's an opportunity to actually see what optometry can contribute as a profession towards science, knowledge generation, I like to say. And then beyond that, it's just a, a really good group of people who, who care about advancing the field. And so, I mean, there's lots of ways you can advance the field. Certainly the AOA advances us politically, the academy advances us scientifically. 
and um, we're all together, you know, so every organization does have its strength. And I, I would argue that in optometry, we really do work together. All the organizations support one another and try to collaborate whenever possible. You know, ASCO tries to work with any of the organizations together so that we can solve common problems or even just add our expertise. I have one last question. What's your greatest joy in life? Oh, goodness. Well, my family, you know, it is, it is a great joy to have children. And I have, you know, two boys who are, one's in college and one's getting ready to go off to college. And so while I might be nagging nearly every minute about finishing the college applications, uh, it's just a, a, a joy to have family. Yeah. Well, the optometry family thanks you for your incredible contributions to date. I can't wait to continue to watch what you do. And I want to thank you for telling your many stories to the audience here on Sandbox Stories. Yeah, Sandbox has been great. Thank you. Well, uh, to the audience, thanks for attending and follow up with some of Dr. Nichols' recommendations. Stay in tune, stay informed, and stay connected. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.